uh, the scriptures set up examples um, for a reason. And, and there are positive and negative. On the positive side, I think of Philippians 2, where Paul says, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself, taking the form of a servant. And, and so Paul explicitly goes to Jesus as our supreme example. And the example that he points us to in Christ was that of humility and, and service out of love. Though he was God, he served us and he laid his life down for us. And so then Paul on that foundation says, and we also ought to lay down our lives for each other. Um, we should have this mind in us, which was also in Christ. In fact, Peter sets up as a criteria for elders in the church in first Peter chapter three, that they serve as examples. And so it does not mean that they are examples in that they are perfect. Um, far be it, because there was only one who was. But examples even of their confession of their imperfections and their their daily need of Christ, um, but also that they are serving in that way and and many others as examples for uh, their flock for the those that they are called to shepherd. And so that's one of the criteria even for pastors and, and elders is that they serve as examples. Paul himself said that uh, the things you've seen and heard and, and learned from me do likewise and sets himself up as an example for the church to follow, which on one hand could sound arrogant or boastful, except on the other hand, he says, his life is Christ's. And everything about his life has been given over to following Jesus. So then he can say, so come and follow me because I'm, I'm following Christ. And so he gives himself as an example to the church. Here in Jude, and, and I want to be um, cautious with our, our time tonight, but in verse 8 through 16, uh, it would be really easy for us to get uh, bogged down with and say all the negativity, but it's one negative example after another. Now, thankfully, we're going to turn a corner a little bit tomorrow night uh, when we begin in verse 17, and then we'll conclude on Wednesday night with the doxology. Um, so the sun will break through the clouds, but for right now, what Jude is doing is giving us negative examples. Now, as I, I said last night, and then following also from Sunday morning, uh, Jude is continuing to build an argument here. He starts off in, in the very beginning by saying that we are to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints because people have crept in unnoticed who are ungodly, perverting grace and giving into sensuality. And so the reason we're to contend for the faith, our personal faith that is rooted in the historic faith of Christianity is because there are those who live completely opposite of that who are on the inside. And now what he's doing is he's continuing to build the examples. So last night we talked about the, the warnings to the church. He says, I want to remind you, although you knew it. And then he gives three examples of Israel, of Sodom and Gomorrah, and also the angels. Now tonight, beginning in verse 8, he says this, in like manner, these people, and he's talking specifically about those he referred to in verse 4, um, those who had crept in, the ungodly, those who are perverting grace, and those who are living for their own sensuality. He says, these people, 
relying on their dreams, defiling the flesh, rejecting authority, and blaspheming the glorious ones. And then the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. These people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they're destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. So verses 8 to 10 form a section. And in verse 8, he says that they rely on their dreams, they defile the flesh, and they reject authority, and they blaspheme the glorious ones. So what in the world is going on there? Well, what I'd like to do is walk through very quickly these, uh, these verses from 8 to 16 and explain them, and then we're going to apply them at the very end. So what happens here in verse 8 is at the bottom line, a justification for behavior, for ungodly behavior. So where they are relying on their dreams, defiling flesh, rejecting authority, and blaspheming the glorious ones, they are justifying their behavior. Relying on their dreams, they're appealing to an authority for their actions before the church. So why do you do what you do is, is the question. And here, these creepers who've come in have said, well, I had a dream. Now, how is it that they would say, I have a dream, and that anybody could ever say, well, that can't be from God. So what they're doing is they're, they're cutting off any argument for any standard outside of themselves. They are their own standard for justifying what they're doing. Then where it says that they defile the flesh, again, this is what they do with their own bodies. There's a connection there to the sensuality and the sexual immorality that characterizes their life. They reject authority. We talked about that last night as examples from the angels, Israel, and Sodom and Gomorrah. And they blaspheme the glorious ones. Um, that's interesting. And I don't know if your translation, I'm reading from the ESV, um, says they blaspheme the glorious ones. And that's, that's more of a literal translation. Um, here we can read into this that these are angels that these people blaspheme. And so what does that mean? Um, how is it that they are blaspheming angels? Well, whatever ambiguity there is or, or things that we might be unsure of in verse 8, I think is clarified in verse 9 and 10. And so in verse 9, it says the archangel Michael, this is one of God's head angels, contended with the devil. He did not... They were disputing over the body of Moses and he didn't pronounce a blasphemous judgment on the devil, but he said, the Lord rebuke you. So some theologians and commentators speculate in verse eight, whether or not the blaspheme from these uh, ungodly folks inside the church, blaspheming the glorious ones, if they were talking about good or evil angels. And I think verse nine points us to the fact that they're talking about evil angels, i.e. demons. So again, <laughs> Whether or not you've ever read or paid attention to Jude, it's, it's a head-scratcher to say, how are they blaspheming evil angels, demons, and why would that even be wrong? And the answer to that is because they are taking a prideful position to pronounce over the body of Moses isn't in my Bible. Well, I'm glad you asked. Uh, there are oftentimes, and this is, again, we... we take in our understanding that all of the books of the Bible, the 66 books from Genesis to Revelation, are inspired by God. 
um, works of divine inspiration, the Holy Spirit moving men to write words that God intended exactly for us to have. So the fact that this story of Moses' body being fought over between Michael and Satan is not in the Bible, the reference to it is inspired by God. Now the story is actually from a, a book that's outside of our 66 called The Assumption of Moses. That's where the story is. And so Jude, whether he took the story itself as happening historically or he's setting it up as an example, no matter whether it happened historically or Jude is using it as an example, the reference here is set to serve as an example to us of not pronouncing judgment, not putting ourselves on a higher platform than what we are. And that, so the fact that Jude is using a story that isn't found in the Bible is not the first time that that's happened. Paul himself, in Acts chapter 17, verse 28, quotes Greek and Roman poets when he's preaching the gospel in Mars Hill in Athens. And he actually quotes non biblical, lost Greco Roman poets. And this is the Apostle Paul. So Acts chapter 17, verse 28. Also in Titus, where Paul's writing to a pastor of the church, young up-and-coming pastor Titus, in chapter 1, verse 12, he also uh, quotes Epimenides, who was a, a Greek philosopher. And so it does not mean that those texts are inspired by God, but inspired writers are referring to things outside of Scripture and saying, this is true. This is, this is a truth that we can embrace as true, or an example that we can learn from. And so twice over in Jude, and these are challenging texts, the Assumption of Moses is a, a non-canonical book, and also First Enoch. We're going to have that toward the end of the message tonight. There's a direct reference to First Enoch. And in the same way, these are books that are not inspired books that are part of our Bible, yet Jude uses them to serve as an example for us. And so, working ourselves in, continuing on um, through verse 9, the, the Lord rebuke you. Verse 10, these people blaspheme all that they don't understand and they are destroyed by all they like unreasoning animals understand instinctively. Um, here, they, they are led by their gut. Whatever they, they feel, they do. And that's what carries them. So they're unreasoning animals. Rationality, logic, Truth, fact, reality doesn't win the day with them. It's whatever they, they feel, whatever they, they think in the moment. That's what they understand instinctively and that's what they do. And what they're doing is destroying them. Verse 11, woe to them. So here he gives three woes. Woe to them for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and they perished in Korah's rebellion. So look at verse 11 then. There's three examples, Cain, Balaam, and Korah. What's going on there? Cain, Genesis chapter 4, verse 6 through 8. Um, Cain offered a sacrifice to God that was rejected. But his brother Abel offered a sacrifice that was accepted. Now, why was Cain's sacrifice rejected and Abel's accepted by God? Because of faith. Abel believed. So Cain and Abel were the offspring of, of Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve would have taught their sons 
about their own sin and about what they had done in the garden and about the sacrifice and the animal sacrifice that God had made for them as a sign of His promise that a seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent though He would strike at the heel of the seed. It was, it was a pronouncement, a proclamation, a prophecy of Christ to come. And they would have taught their sons about that promise from God of their salvation. Of this seed. And they would have said, hey, He sacrificed an animal to clothe us. Though we were kicked out of the garden righteously so, justice, justice was served, yet he, he sacrificed for us and clothed us. So Abel brings an animal sacrifice. And Cain brings one of the grain of the field. And God rejects his and accepts Abel. The issue wasn't ultimately the sacrifice. The issue was the heart. And, and Abel's sacrifice by faith was accepted by God. And it infuriated Cain. So Cain sought to kill his brother. And God intercedes and says, Sin is knocking at your door and its desire is for you, but you must overcome it. But rather than listening to the Lord and, and heeding the warning, he killed his brother. And so he chose wickedness over goodness. Now, what about Balaam? Um, this occurs, the story of Balaam in Numbers chapter 20 through two, 22 through 24 of the book of Numbers. And in it, he sought financial gain to pronounce a curse over Israel. And, and even in the, Balaam's famous for his donkey talking to him and warning him. And, and even in the midst of that, um, we see that the motivations of Balaam's heart are to get financial gain. Numbers 21, 15-20. So that the result of, of Balaam's life is that at the very end, in Numbers 31, verse 8, he's killed fighting against Israel. Now, he does not curse them. He blesses them. Yet, his heart was unchanged. Unchanged. And he ultimately dies fighting against Israel. And then Korah, where does Korah come on the scene? Numbers chapter 16. Korah opposed the leaders of the church. And he was in opposition to them. And, and he spoke that and he led a rebellion and he was ultimately swallowed up. And all of his followers, when, when the earth opened up and sucked them all in, so, woe to these people who crept into the church because they walked in the way of Cain. They chose evil instead of good. They abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's heir. They were more led for financial, material, prosperous gain. And they perished in Korah's rebellion. They stood in direct opposition to God-given leaders of the church who should have had served as an authority over them. So, verse 12, their hidden reefs at love feasts as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Alright, so this is another section that Jude takes us down. Hidden reefs at love feasts. What's that all about? Um, this was first century church practice where the church would come together to celebrate the Lord's death and resurrection by taking communion, typically in the middle or at the end of a meal. 
And so they gather not unlike what we did tonight to break bread together, to have fellowship with each other. And then in the midst of that, to celebrate Jesus' death and resurrection, they, they took communion together. And so in the midst of a love feast, these people are hidden reefs. So a, a hidden reef is a reef that sets low enough in the water that it goes undetected. And as a ship is coming into port, it, it strikes the reef because it's low enough to go undetected. Yet, once it comes in contact, it rips a hole in the bottom of the boat and causes the boat to sink. So they are hidden reefs at your love feast because they feast with you without fear. That, that's shameless. There's no shame for what they're doing. They're shepherds feeding themselves. This is a reference to Ezekiel chapter 34 of the shepherds of Israel who were more concerned about feeding themselves than feeding the sheep. And the pronouncement of judgment from Ezekiel the prophet over these shepherds is that they're not only feeding themselves, but they're also not going out to protect and to bring back in wandering sheep. And so that in Ezekiel 34 is where God proclaims and prophesies about the great shepherd, the good shepherd who would come and be the shepherd of the sheep. They're waterless clouds. A, wa a cloud is meant in a very arid climate like Palestine in this fertile crescent. Um, a, a cloud without rain was useless. They depended on the seasonal rains to come in and water the land. And so these are waterless clouds. They're, they're good for nothing. They're swept along by winds. Fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea. Um, what's interesting here is that there's reference to four elements from the natural world and it covers every aspect. Clouds, trees, waves, stars. And they all carry an element to communicate a point about these who serve as a negative example to us. They're good for nothing. They're easily swayed by whatever's coming, swept along by winds. There's fruitless trees in late autumn. By late autumn, something should have produced. At this point, you're at the very end of season. And, and a fruitless tree by late autumn means that it's not going to happen. If it were going to produce good fruit, it would have happened by now. And so they're twice dead. This is a way of saying that they're fully dead. Dead on the inside, dead on the outside. Wild waves of the sea casting up foam. Sarah and I were at Myrtle Beach uh, three weeks ago with her family for an annual vacation. And if you've ever walked along the beach and seen the foam that comes in from the waves, um, this is the... The, the picture here for Jude is of residue. They, uh, they not only lack good works, but they're leaving behind uh, a nastiness. It's, it's two sides really of sin. Not just not doing the good things that they should, but doing the bad things that they shouldn't. And so they're wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. This is a picture of blackness of judgment, utter darkness. And if you've ever found yourself in a place where the lights go out and there's nothing to see by, gotten up early in the morning and stubbed your toe because you didn't turn a light on, imagine perpetual and utter darkness. This was one of the judgments against Egypt of the ten before God led his people out of captivity. And then lastly here, verses 14 to 16, it was also about these. These are the people that are on the inside. 
the seventh that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied. Now, again, I, I mentioned before, there's a reference to the book of first Enoch here. And so the prophecy is from first Enoch, chapter one, verse nine. If you ever want to look at the book of first Enoch. Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his holy ones. Again, these are angels, the good ones. To execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they've committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So that's a quote from the book of First Enoch. So there's a pronouncement of judgment from Enoch on those who do these things. They are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires, loudmouth boasters, Showing favoritism to gain advantage. Now, again, these are so that. All right. Verses eight through 16. What are we to do with all of this? These are the people on the inside of the church that serve as an example for us and and following along with last night as a warning. So what are the three examples that are set by them for us? That's the application question for us tonight. And the first, I'm going to give you three C's. Okay, so if we're looking at verse 8 through 16 and seeing from here an example for us to follow, the first example has to do with condemnation. All right, judgment. That we are to judge not, lest we be judged. That's Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7, verse 1. And so these persons judge the angels, and they are condemned for it. And so we have to, within the church, follow an example of not pronouncing undue judgment. And, and let me explore that for a little bit with you. Where it comes to judgment, I would say that Matthew chapter 7, verse 1 is one of the most misused verses in all the Bible. Especially from people claiming that the church is full of a bunch of hypocrites. And they would say, well, doesn't the Bible say you're not supposed to judge? And, and that's a loose reference to Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. And in response to that, Matthew chapter 7, verse 1 is where Jesus talks about a hypocritical judgment. Sure enough, point of fact, we are not supposed to judge hypocritically. And, and what that means is that we are holding other people guilty for things and condemning them that we are guilty of. So Jesus goes into an example about having a log in your eye when you look at the speck in somebody else's eye. And he says, first, take the log out of your, uh, your own eye. Then you'll be able to see clearly to help your brother with the speck. So this doesn't mean no judgment. This means hypocritical judgment. And in many ways, those on the outside of the church are very right about the hypocritical judgment of those on the inside of the church. So this is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and I'll, I'll read it for you. He talks about a church that had tolerated sin on the inside of, of sexual grossness and heinousness that he says not even people on the outside would tolerate that but you on the inside are tolerating that and so in first corinthians chapter 5 he says i wrote to you not to associate with sexually immoral people 
not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world or the greedy or the swindlers or the idolaters. Since then, you would have to go out of the world. This is 1 Corinthians 5 verse 9. He's saying, I'm not saying not to not, not to not associate with people in the world who are sexually immoral, greedy, swindlers, idolaters, because then you'd have to leave because that's characterizes the world. But I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. If he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, don't even eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. What Paul is saying is we get it backwards. What we do is we're heavy handed with everybody on the outside. And he's saying, but what do you have to do with judging those on the outside? That's up to God. Again, I said this last night. God has kept us here now for the world, not against them, but for them. So that we might be salt and light, that other people might come to confess Jesus as Lord. And what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 5, but what we ought to be looking at is each other to, to say, Repent of your sin. This thing that you're doing is shameful. You have to turn. That's why Jude is pronouncing this warning for all of us concerning us. What have I to do with judging outsiders? Let God take care of that, but purge the evil from among you. And so this this idea of condemning the world to hell is not our call to make. That's that's up to God. His judgment is righteous and we can entrust him with it. But what it means is that we are out of a sake of desire for Christ's holiness, the purity of his church and and the witness that we have together to look at one another, not in condemnation, not in hypocritical judgment, but out of love to say this thing that I'm hearing or seeing in you, it's not good. And you should turn from it. This is Galatians chapter six, verse one. That we are that we are to call our fellow brothers and sisters to turn from sin to Christ with a a heart of love for them. And that's vital because the motivation can't be again. uh, You know, I've got it together. I've I've got this thing licked. No, it's. Looking to myself to see that I'm not caught up in this uh, this thing. Getting the plank out of my own eye and then coming to my brother and sister and saying. Here's here's this thing, it seems to me. Have you considered, did you hear how that sounded? The the attitude, have you considered how that might have come across to, to them? And, and that we're doing that with each other. I mean, that's a, a part of what it means to be a part of the family. And so the examples that are set for us is firstly about condemnation, that we are not to judge hypocritically and we are certainly not to judge the world. We are to judge rightly and graciously each other. And that is not a a, a, a negative sinful thing. That is a godly thing of calling each other out for righteous reasons on our sin. 
And it might mean that you've never considered a church to have that place in your life, yet that's exactly one of the many reasons God has given us the church. I say all the time, join a church that will kick you out. Alright, that's 1 Corinthians 5. But that is a God-given means to sanctify you. To show you your sin. You and I live with blinders very often like this on our lives. If you want to know how you're doing, ask the people that are closest to you who love and know Jesus and your church family and friends and say, do you see any sin in me that I might be unaware of? And be willing to take it. But if people really love you, your Christian family and friends, and especially your church, they're, they're already going to be willing to. I love Proverbs 26.6. It says, Reprove, Proverbs 26.6, um, Blessed are the, the wounds of a friend, but an enemy multiplies kisses. An enemy is only going to tell you what you want to hear. A friend will tell you what you need to hear. And that's, that's part of the role of the church. Join a church that will kick you out. Join a church that will, that will tell you what you need to hear, not just what you want to hear. Alright, second example is a claim of authority. So in Jude, again, they're, they're caught up in their dreams, they're, they're pulled along by their appetites and the things that they desire, their sinful desires, this is what they follow. That's verse 16. And so condemn, claim. Alright, these are our three C's. What are the examples that are set for, his, for us? Condemnation and judgment. And a claim to authority. Claiming authority. What's our authority? That's the question. And the answer for us is always and only and solely the Word of God. On what grounds do you base what you think and what you say and what you do? Everybody reads from a Bible. Whether it's the Holy Bible or not. Everybody has their Bible. And what I mean by that is a claim for authority. Twice in the past six months in my office, I've, I've had people in my own church say to me, I don't care what the Bible says. Here's what I think. And, and I, I sat back in the midst of contentious conversations because they were being called out for wrong. And, and in the midst of a counseling session where somebody says to me, I don't care what the Bible thinks. I think, OK, well, at least you've said it. At least you've shown me your hand. So if you don't care what the, the Bible says, here's what I think or here's what I feel, then then what you're doing is you're setting a standard and everybody has a standard for what they think and what they say and what they do. Everybody does. So it's either your own thinking or your own feeling or your own experience or your own opinion or your own. It, it's something that you ground your authority. And here, those on the inside of the church, they grounded their authority on their sinful desires and on their dreams. And on anything else they could get their hands on. And Jude is telling us that by their example, we need to claim authority solely and exclusively on the word of God. Why do you believe what you believe? There's a, a great old hymn, how firm a foundation ye saints of the Lord God hath laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say to you than he hath said? What more can he say to you? than what he's already said in his word. Now, this is the reason that your pastor and and all of us are under the same authority. 
the authority that's claimed is someone else's, which is God's. And we all stand under it. It is the rule for our faith and for our life. So what are we to make of church practices and church doctrines and church disputes? What are we to do about disputes amongst believers? What are we to do when two people have two varying opinions about things? We have to always go back to the word. It is our authority for faith and for life. And so we must claim it. So much more could be said here. Thirdly, condemnation, claiming authority, and the last is complaining. And so these people blaspheme all that they don't understand. They pronounce judgments. Verse 16, they grumble. Their malcontents constantly discontentedness characterizes them. And so as Jude describes their life, they serve as an example about complaining. Uh, I found it interesting. I came across an article uh, last year that the average person complains uh, in total eight minutes and 46 seconds. I don't know how in the world scientists or sociologists got this number, but the average person complains on average eight minutes and 46 seconds per day. Of, of just straight complaint, if you added it all together, um, not <laughs> Not uh, unimaginable here that the the greatest number of complaints come in the earliest part of the week, Monday, right? Um, if you add it all up together with the average lifespan, uh, we spend typically 53 hours a year of complaining. So if you bundle it all together and set it aside, 53 hours, two plus days of nothing but complaining. Most complaints, uh, the common ones are things are too expensive. Um, there's nothing decent to watch on TV. Uh, the weather is not what I want it to be. Um, household chores, finances, and government. Those are the most common complaints that take up 8 minutes and 46 seconds a day, 53 hours a year. Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, this is a, a memory verse that we've taught our kids. Uh, sorry, Philippians chapter 2, verse 14, do all things without complaining or disputing, grumbling or questioning. And it's a direct command to us. And interestingly enough about Philippians chapter 2 is he says, do all things without complaining or disputing. And he directly connects that to our witness to the world. Listen to it. That you might be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Why is it that we shine as lights in the world, according to Paul? Because we're blameless and innocent. What's the mark of blamelessness and innocence that we are doing everything without complaining or disputing? That's, that's how you work the, the, the logic backwards. There is a direct witness to the world about you living with joy in your heart and trusting God in all of your circumstances, including the weather and work on Monday and the co-workers that you have that God by His divine sovereignty has placed in your life. 
and not complaining or disputing. Complaining and disputing has a direct line to God who has put you in every circumstance around every person that you find yourself. And whether or not you believe it, when you complain and you dispute, you grumble and you question, it is a direct connection to faith in your life about the God who has you in His hands where you are. Which is why in Romans 1.21, Paul says that unbelievers neither honor God as God or give Him thanks. The opposite of complaining and disputing is gratitude. And it's the mark of the believer's life. And so the example of these people who've come into the church serve for us about condemning the world, claiming authority outside of Scripture, and complaining about anything or everything in our life. I want to leave you with a, a positive um, example about what a life lived following um, the example of Jesus Christ, opposite of those who come into this church that Jude is talking about for us. Um, there's a woman whose um, name is Catherine Laws. Her husband was Lewis Laws, and he was the warden of Sing Sing Prison from 1920 to 1941. At the time that, that Lewis Laws became the warden of Sing Sing, um, the average tenure of a warden was two years or less. Um, Sing Sing was the, the roughest, worst prison in the U.S. at the time that he became the warden. Catherine, uh, his wife, was very young and she had three small children when Lewis Laws became the warden. And so um, Catherine and Lewis, they were Christians and they decided because of their faith, they were going to, to live by faith in the way that they served the prisoners. Um, direct quote from Catherine was that these, these men... Uh, we are going to love them and, I, and care for them. And I believe that they will then care for us as we love and care for them. So the very first basketball game that they had when Lewis became the warden, Catherine came to the prison and sat in the stands with her three small children in the midst of hardened criminals and inmates. She heard about a blind prisoner. And so she would daily come and see him and, and hold his hand so she could he could feel hers. And, and she asked him, do you know how to read Braille? And he said, what's that? And so she taught herself to read Braille so she could teach him to read Braille. She also heard of a, a deaf mute prisoner. And she taught herself how to do sign language so she could teach him how to do sign language. She made daily visits and oftentimes ran errands for the prisoners. So from 1920 to 1937, Catherine lived in service to those prisoners. And then in 1937, she was killed in a car wreck. Uh, when the warden didn't show up for the next day after she was killed, the prisoners knew something had happened and word spread throughout the prison that Catherine had died. And so the, the assistant warden took over duties temporarily while the warden was tending to his children and preparing for his wife's funeral. And on the following day, two days after Catherine's death, her body was laid out in a casket at their home uh, almost a mile, three quarters of a mile away from the prison. And the assistant warden was making rounds and he noticed to the man, every prisoner that had been on the grounds was lined up at the main gate looking out in the direction of the warden's home. And so he comes down and he says to the prisoners, what's going on? And they said that we would like to go to Catherine's funeral. 
And so unheard of before or since, the assistant warden ordered that the main gates be opened. And he said to the prisoners, be back by dark. And unguarded every prisoner, murderers, rapists, and the, the most hardened criminals known at the time that were in prison at Sing Sing marched three quarters of a mile to pay their respects to Catherine Laws for the love and the care that she showed them. One prisoner said that she showed us Jesus Christ. And if he were alive today incarnate, we believe that he would look exactly like Catherine Laws did to us. And so Jude tells us of three negative examples. But in that, he sets before us how we are to live before each other. Loving each other. Loving the world around us. Claiming solely and only God's word as our foundation for what we think and what we feel and what we believe and how we treat each other. And, and that is the example for us to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Let me pray for us tonight. God, I, I, I ask that with such a, a difficult and challenging text before us, that you would set before us and our eyes by faith, Jesus Christ and him crucified, who did not regard equality with you a thing to be grasped, but he served us in humbling himself and taking the form of a servant. And I ask, Lord, that you would use us in following the example of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our master. To not follow in the example of the ungodly. But to to serve as an example to those around us. Lord, I, I ask that you would use me as an example for my wife, and my children. They're on the front lines of my life and I'm in the front lines of theirs. Lord, I ask that you would use me as an example to my church and to my neighbors, um, the people that I, I work with, the people that I hang out with, the people I interact with on a daily basis, that in, in this way of even the way that Catherine Laws loved these prisoners, I know and you know better than me that there were hearts and lives that were changed as a result of the example that she set because of her faith in Jesus. And I ask that you would do that with us that the example that you use us by faith in Jesus would have a transformative impact in the lives of the people around us. For your name's sake, Jesus. Amen.